You're listening to the Speechy Side Up podcast, episode number 16. Today we are joined by the original AAC Speechy, Gail Van Tatenhove. Gail is a genius when it comes to core vocabulary and AAC resources. In this episode, we discuss what Gail finds to be the most challenging part of providing AAC services, new trends in the field, and even how she enjoys incorporating fashion with AAC. You're listening to the Speechy Side Up podcast with Kim and Vanita. Just two SLPs in a pod who love their field and supporting fellow SLP bosses. This podcast will cover the flip side of traditional speech and language therapy so you get inspired and learn from experts in the field. Here are your hosts. When they are not working together on their social book series, Lou Knows What to Do, Vanita can be found traveling or drinking matcha lattes. Kim can be found running marathons or fueling her coffee addiction to function as a mom to a preschooler and an infant. Together, they are serving up some informative and fun topics in Speechy Side Up. Hey everybody, Kim and Vanita here. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow us on Instagram at SpeechySideUp, S-P-E-E-C-H-I-E-S-I-D-E-U-P. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today we have one of the original AAC speeches, Gail Van Tatenhove. Gail, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such an honor to have you on the show. In my passion for working with individuals with complex communication needs, I've heard tales of the infamous Gail Van Tatenhove, but have never had the opportunity to meet with you. Now, here we are. I've used so many of your resources and have shared your word lists and YouTube videos with so many therapists and families for AAC implementations. I think I can speak on behalf of other AAC speeches in saying that you are a genius when it comes to aided language simulation and core vocabulary hacks, and you have been an inspiration to all SLPs who aspire to provide their clients with a means of functional communication. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what your journey has been, and what you do today? Thank you. Thank you very much for having me with you today. I'm very honored to be participating And I'm particularly glad to share a few things that I've learned in my journey as a speech-language pathologist. First off, I am a seasoned SLP, having graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire in 1976, followed by my master's degree in 1977. So I've been practicing for 41 years. And in those years, some things have remained the same, and some things I would say have radically changed. Like many speech language pathologists who are graduating today or unlike them, I actually had coursework that addressed the communication needs of people who could speak. And one of the classes was called something like um, communication intervention with special population. And our class of about 25 graduate students learned that all people, needed core vocabulary as the base of real language potential. So that's one of the things that has never changed for me. You know, people say, oh, Gail Van Tatenhove, she's all about core vocabulary. I've been about core vocabulary since 1977. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, maybe some could say stuck in a rut, but we learned in that class, we learned how to take that core vocabulary 
and put it on communication boards, organizing it in ways that promoted easy access to those words. And so those principles that I learned in 1977, I'm still applying them today when I'm working with clients with both low-tech systems, like a simple core board, or high-tech systems. For me, it's still always about give them access to core in ways that are easy for them to communicate. Um, but I would say in my story, I got a lot more than book learning at the university level. As a graduate student, I did a semester at a, at a school that was a res residential school supporting students with autism spectrum disorders. Um, and then I did another semester at a tiny little school way out in the country. I think it was like three rooms, but they served kids with severe multiple disabilities. And the majority of those kids did not physically speak. And I would say in that experience, I had an amazing speech language pathology supervisor. Um, and her name was Dr. Joan Sasala. And she, she's been a mentor to me because I'm still in touch with her some 40 years later. Wow. We'll talk about those principles that I learned working with those kids that I'm still doing today. So in my journey after, after those wonderful experiences at the undergraduate and graduate level, I went on to take a uh, job at a school, a self-contained school out in Iowa, serving students from five different counties. And these were all kids that were severely multiply impaired. Um, and it was a model at that time where those students were not being served by their local school districts. So they were either bused five counties away to this school or they lived in some of our residential facilities. But that's really where I started to cut my teeth on this emerging field called augmentative communication because my caseload was very big and almost all non-speaking. Um, and what I, I need to remind your audience that in 1977, when I was starting, there was absolutely no professional support for what I was doing with non-speaking kids. In fact, ASHA, our governing body, the American Speech Language Hearing Association in 1977, did not even recognize AAC as a field of practice. Oh, oh wow, I didn't realize that. Oh, oh no, there was. In fact, there would be some who said, Asha looked with a, hmm, an askewed look at us working with people who didn't speak. Um, they were not in the leadership. It was special ed that was in the leadership of providing services for kids who were non-speaking. Wow. So could I not go to Asha and say, help? Uh, I couldn't go to any commercial company. I couldn't wow. open up a catalog and find any materials. I couldn't call a device manufacturer and say, could you come out here and help me? So there I sat in my room at this new school with what they had given me, which was office supplies and a Peabody picture vocabulary test. And I had to figure out what I was going to do. And I started figuring it out by looking at similar programs, like where are there people who are serving kids like this? And I found two people. I found Dr. Sheila Stewart, and she was at the Crippled Children's Center up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
and there was Dr. Faith Carlson, and she was at the Myers Children's Rehabilitation Clinic in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, the point of why I'm actually specifically mentioning these women um, is that I, I really do want your audience to know that as a young speech language pathologist 40 years ago, I stood on the shoulders of some really great people. And I, and I feel a really tremendous responsibility today to be the shoulders for others, like you two young ladies yourselves, upon which you can stand to continue to advance the field. So I really had some great help and some great mentors. And so after my stint at that school, which was for about five years, I moved to Florida, where I went to work at the Communication Systems Evaluation Center. And at the time, that was a specialized center as part of the Florida Diagnostics and Learning Resource System. So we were a specialized fiddler center. And my role was as the speech language pathologist on this interdisciplinary team. And we assessed students across the entire state of Florida. So people would fill out this plethora of paperwork, get on a waiting list, and come down to spend a day with us where we would just spend five, six, seven hours with sometimes a very little kid and put them through their paces. And at the end of that, we recommended some type of AAC system. And I did that from 1982 to 1988. And part of my job was after we recommended an AAC system, we went to the local school district to try to help implement it. So I spent a lot of time driving the length and breadth of the state of Florida, <laughs> uh, helping teams at local school districts implement the systems we had recommended. And there were times I looked at our report and thought, what were we thinking? <laughs> so, work at all in the environment where this child is going to school. So it really became a, a practical experience for me where I actually spent a lot of time in classrooms and talking with teachers and talking with paraprofessionals and realizing that what might look good on paper doesn't always work in the real world. Um, but today, um, I have a private practice and I support both children and adults who use AAC systems. And actually, as I'm winding down, um, because I'll confess it, I'm not ashamed of it, I'm 64 years old. Um, I don't have the energy quite to do the kind of direct therapy I used to do, but I'm redirecting that energy to work much more with families mm -hmm. and much more with the daily caregivers. Um, and I also consult with Semantic Compaction Systems, the company founded by Bruce Baker, the inventor of MinSpeak. And in my role with them, I'm developing webinars and materials, and I conduct workshops um, around the world, helping teach people about core vocabulary and generative language and uh, MinSpeak and Unity websites. Um, I just recently came back from uh, doing some of that training on, on their behalf in Iceland. Wow. Oh, wow. It's so exciting. It's always exciting to see AAC around the world. So, you know, kind of ending my story here, 
I would say my story has intersected with a lot of amazing people, both big names in the field and, but more importantly, a countless number of grassroots people just quietly doing their jobs. And one thing I think that connects all these people together is a fundamental belief in the value of communication. Um, because communication brings dignity and worth to all people. Whether you're severely disabled with multiple sensory inputs or you're very uh, limited disability um, and you're the brightest and the best of that population group, everybody through communication gets dignity and respect. And you know, I might be in the spotlight now but I just really want to acknowledge the very many untold and unsung heroes that are out there in our field. Oh, so, so well said. My so story. Said. I had to tell my story. <laughs> I loved hearing your story. I know, Thank you I so much for it. sharing. So <laughs> fantastic. And I love how, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm winding down, but your outreach is even stronger than ever. So in some ways you're winding down, but you're actually helping so many more people to provide the intervention, you yeah. know for all the people that need it, so, so amazing. So now, as someone who's been providing AAC intervention for 40 years, what do you think is the most challenging piece of providing those AAC services? Well, you know, that's an important question, and I really appreciate that you let me know in advance you were gonna ask me that, <laughs> because there's a number of things I could have given you as a, as like kind of a knee-jerk response, and, and I think, you know, they would all be perfectly valid answers. But as I thought of that question, um, there's actually two things that have come to mind that I think are particularly challenging to me um, in providing good quality service. Um, and first, I think it's just as challenging for me today as it was in 1977 for me to really get my head around what's known as the lived experience. That's a phrase I'm gonna use, the lived experience of a person using AAC. That term, the lived experience, um, is used to describe the first-hand accounts and impressions of living as a member of a minority or oppressed group. And we might not think of AAC users as an oppressed group or a minority, but that term was first introduced to me and discussed in terms of AAC uh, by an amazing woman, Dr. Kathy Howery. Uh, she's in the educational psychology department at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Um, and I've spent, you know, I've spent countless hours in the homes of people using AAC systems because I, I don't have an office where people come to see me. I've always driven to see them. Um, so I've been in homes and I've been in group homes um, and I've been in foster homes and I've been at homes where people moved and I didn't know where they went. <laughs> you know, I've been in homes. Um, and, but it wasn't until I heard Dr. Howery speak that I actually had a term to describe a phenomenon that was always a little disconcerting and challenging to me. Um, because you know, even though I've had this long-term involvement with people who use AAC um, and their families, you know, many of the clients that I've seen, I've seen for over 10 years. You know, and I used to think that I knew what their lives were like. I used to think I had a good handle 
on what was going on in the home, you know, but I don't anymore. Um, and I don't feel like I have a really good handle on what it means to be a non-speaking person because I've never been truly non-speaking. I could lose my voice a little bit today and have a little tickle and feel like, oh, my, my communication is breaking down. But that's not the same as being non-speaking. Mm -hmm. I've never been, like for some of the adults I've worked with, I've never been overlooked for 20 or 30 years because I couldn't speak. You know, I've never, for some of our kids, been made to feel so vulnerable and fearful of what might happen to me if I couldn't communicate. So, you know, every day that I interact with adults who use AAC and with families of children who use AAC, I learned something new about the lived experience. What is this like for you um, of using an AAC system? And it, it just reshapes my appreciation of their lives and the tenacity they have and the persistence that they have. And it re-energizes my efforts to make sure that I'm helping them, but that I'm helping them based on their true lived experiences. I hope you're following me on that. It's like, it's, oh, yeah. it made me think about what do I really do that's gonna make their life better? You know, I know our, our speech pathologists, especially those working in the schools, you know, have to do intervention based on making sure the kid does the, meets the curriculum. Um, and there's all sorts of valid things that we do. But for me, one of my big challenges is making sure I'm aware of their lived experiences and how their lives could be made better by making sure I help them communicate. So that's my first challenge that I thought about. Um, and my second ch challenge um, was based on a recent count encounter I had with a person who is a highly, highly respected AAC consultant. And this AAC consultant said to me, we don't need to give someone the best AAC system possible. We only need to give them whatever is good enough. You know, and I heard that statement and it startled me. Um, but as, as we talked together, I better appreciate what he meant. And what he meant was we don't need to give someone an AAC system with all the fancy bells and whistles. Uh, we only need to give them what is good to meet their needs and what can be supported. But it, it made me think about this whole notion of good enough. And I'm wondering how often have I seen a kid get an AAC system or an adult get an AAC system that somebody said, well, this is good enough. And it wasn't done with the depth of thought that my colleague was talking about it. Um, because I think this notion of many to, to say, I'm going to give them something that's good enough. They're not able to see beyond the good enough to what could be what could be if appropriate supports and intervention was provided. You know, if good enough was good enough, I'm not sure people would be working on core vocabulary 
and helping young kids produce generative language. For many, I think good enough means, well, let's give this kid with autism spectrum disorders a simple AAC system that'll help him manage his behaviors. Or let's give a kid a good enough system who has severe multiple disabilities a choice board that allows her to make requests. So good enough, I think, is lacking vision of what's possible if we look beyond the person's current needs and see their potential for the production of generative language. I mean, if I lose my ability to communicate with speech, I can tell you I don't want good enough. Do you? No. <laughs> so I think those are the challenges that, that came to mind as I, as I look across the 40 years of my experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I heard someone speak and they were talking about how, you know, Sometimes we'll start kids off at where they are, what's good enough for right now. Maybe that's four words. But like as a parent to a child, how would you feel if your therapist said that your child would only use four words the rest of their life? And so I love how you, you brought that point out that you have to look beyond what their current needs are. And we don't know what the possibility is. And maybe we give them access to those words. They may never use them all, but at least we gave them access to that. So Absolutely. thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. And you were just talking about the whole behavior piece too, because yeah, I'll let you explain it. Oh yeah. I was just saying like, sometimes um, there's uh, just to go back to your point too. I think like that's so important for people to understand presumed competence so that they understand that good enough isn't enough. So I really love that point. But um, yeah, I was just saying that sometimes um, at the school that I work at, there's like a behavior, there's some confusion between verbal behavior and, and, behavior management and sometimes you know it's it's difficult when like different people disagree about that and sometimes like a kiddo is telling us like I don't want to work and people are saying well maybe they need more on their AAC systems or this and that and I'm like well that's technically a behavior that they're managing but they are telling us exactly what they don't want to do and are we listening to it or like you know yeah. um you know and as a private practitioner and I'm generally hired by families I could relate story after story of a family I started working with when the kid was five or six, you know, and now they're, now they're graduated high school and they're graduated UCF and they're living independently. And I think back towards what people wanted to give them when they were three and four and five, which was good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that vision of what the future would be, um, and constantly pushing beyond good enough is, is limited when a person never gets a chance to work with a kid beyond one or two or three years. Mm -hmm. And that often happens in a school program. Somebody might be working at the preschool level and have a student for a couple years and then they go on to an elementary school and that person at the elementary school has them for a couple years or they change to another school and here comes another therapist. It's when you follow somebody for 20 years, you see that investment that you made when they were three and four and you see the payoff at pushing the envelope past good enough when they're now living independently. 
Absolutely. It's so true. And I think sometimes people really can assume that they do know exactly what's good enough to put on that board. And that's all that that child needs. And I feel like so surprised at times by my clients and, you know, different things that they want to communicate to me. Um, I had been making one of those little Pinterest projects with a student and I had a core board with some fringe vocabulary for, um, I don't know if you've ever seen those Twinkie cars that people make. They put like around Easter time, like a Peeps into a Twinkie with some cookie wheels. And it's, you know, it was just really fun and a great chance to use a lot of the core terms that were on the board. And the student kept telling me, put it on, put it on, put it on. And I, and, you know, we put everything on and it's completed and I'm not figuring out what is the issue here. And then he started motioning to me and he was showing me like a seatbelt, like he was extremely upset. And he kept saying, put it on that. Like I had never thought that this student is going to need his peep to have a seatbelt in the Twinkie car. And so we got it, we got a Twizzler and we made a seatbelt and it was fine. But like, you know, that's the power of core. And also like, just, it's not good enough. We don't always know what people want, you know? Oh, that's fabulous. That's a great story. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on, what trends in the field of AAC do you find encouraging? Uh, I loved thinking about this, thinking about those trends. Um, And one trend that I believe is really encouraging and and positive is, and I'm going to call it the democratization of AAC. And I want to preface what I'm about to say with this statement that every positive trend or anything taken to extreme becomes a weakness. With the use of off-the-shelf technology like iPads and tablets with apps, specialized professionals no longer guard the gate that you have to go through for getting an AAC system. Anyone can go out and buy an iPad and an app for a person. And obviously, the weakness of this trend is that anyone can go out (laughs) and an iPad for a person. And in doing so, they're thinking that they've provided someone with an appropriate AAC system. But I generally think it's a good thing that we have this democratization. We've gone through some bumps in our field as, as, as we've introduced iPads and tablets and apps that people can go out and buy. But I lived through that period where people had to wait a long time to come down to the Communication Systems Evaluation Center, wait for this group of people to see you, and and deem what we thought was the thing that was the most appropriate for you. So I I like this idea that um, more people are having a voice in the selection of what we are giving kids and allowing them to try out. And another aspect of this democratization of AAC is the use of social media. You know, obviously you guys are deeply invested in the use of social media. You know, so that means people are sharing information quickly through podcasts, through Facebook groups, through Twitter feeds and Pinterest and all that other social media. And what's great about that is everyone has a voice and everyone has equal access to this information. And from all this diversity comes innovation and new perspectives, which I think is really exciting. But the downside of this trend that I've been observing, particularly among parents and among young SLPs, 
is what I was call AAC assessment through social media. Is a parent or a young professional post something at a social media site, let's say Facebook, and they're describing the person or the child and says they need an AAC system, and they say, well, what do you think we should get? So in about you know, 40 or to 50 characters, they've given me a synopsis of the person, and the result will be a bevy of responses from, you know, from one extreme to another, and everybody is basing it, basing it on what's worked for me. Uh, and I look at these exchanges, and in my head, I'm screaming, go to the ASHA practice portal on AAC. You know, start there. You know, study the evidence. Learn what you're ethically supposed to do in an AAC assessment. Yeah. Now, I have no problems with parents posting those questions. Help. You know, this, but I have an issue when SLPs are posting it because yeah. there are plenty of resources out there beyond social media. Um, you know, what I'm imagining is that SLP, that young SLP is posting that stuff most likely because she wasn't given proper university-based training. You know, I go back to in 1977, I graduated having had three courses. And I don't think you can say that about too many people graduating today, that they've even had one course. And, you know, I don't want to get into a discussion about, you know, ASHES certifications and all these things. But as a field, I think we have to address this trend and address this challenge. And once again, I go back to my, my beliefs, belief as I'm winding down my career that as a seasoned SLP, it's my responsibility to make sure I provide the kinds of supports for these young therapists. The same supports that Sheila Stewart gave me and Faith Carlson gave me. So when I see those postings on Facebook, I try in my most gentle typing, <laughs> the calmest typing, to provide some guidance in the right direction. Um, so that's a trend, this democratization of the field of AAC. Um, but before I go on, I got a couple other trends. What do you guys think about the democratization? Uh, you know, it's so funny because I've actually seen some of those exchanges on different Facebook SLP groups, and I feel like it's really a circuit. Like, holy Lord, the things that you see on there, because then you also have not even specifically with AAC, but other just people asking advice on a social media realm. And then you have some people crawling out of the woodwork, critiquing the person saying, how could you not know this? And then other people attacking them. And it's really a frenzy and it's horrible. And I think it's, um, I think it has a little bit to do with just like it's 2018 and especially younger people who have grown up on social media, because I, rem I can remember going out with my friends and that not being a thing. And there was no evidence of everything that happened, whereas everything is recorded and, you know, just people are so invested in being on there. Um, I think that people are so used to it. It's like 2018, instant gratification, get on this, you know, this platform and, and do it. But I definitely agree that it's super negative. Um, and it's not the right place at all that you should go. It's not like, you know, nobody's giving you actual evidence-based resources <laughs> sitting on Facebook being a keyboard warrior, you know? <laughs> you know, and I think about that's our experience, whether or not, it doesn't take long on, on, on Facebook to see that these kind of feeding frenzies happen mm -hmm. very quickly, whether it's from politics 
or professional stuff. And I wonder how desperate, particularly a family might be, to say, I'm going to post it in this, this environment, in the social media environment, um, to get some help. And uh, how desperate they must be that they're going that route rather than going to talk to their local speech pathologist, the classroom teacher, finding a parent yeah. group. You know, that again, speaks to me about how much we have to provide additional support for our families. They're, they're desperate for it. If they're going sure. to social media and figure out what to do, they're desperate for it. It's true. And I feel like if they would pump the brakes for just a minute, you would realize that you go to social media and something like that, especially when it gets, you know, I guess viral per se, um, that then you get 4,000 answers and you're probably more confused, you know, <laughs> um, than you were in the beginning because now you have all these conflicting professional opinions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, my second trend, which is hope a little bit more encouraging, I think is that is the swing of the pendulum in favor of giving our guys what I'm going to call, and I'm air quoting this, multiple screens. We were in a period in our field, I would say at least 10 years ago, where we wanted the AAC system to be and do everything for the person. And, you know, that takes me back to that, that colleague who said, we don't need the best system. I think he's thinking back to where, we, get, we had to give somebody something that was their communication device, and it was their computer, and it was their CD, DVD player, and it was their camera. And I used to kid, if you could just combine it with a Roomba, <laughs> it would be the perfect device so that when the device wasn't being used, it was sitting on the floor and it would vacuum for you. I mean, <laughs> we were just putting everything in this device. And now we're seeing the practice whereby people are encouraging the use of the AAC device for spoken and written communication. Because, you know, they're, and they're promoting second screens, like another computer or a second tablet for the other activities you do. We've learned, uh, sometimes through the hard way, that our consumers, they want a highly effective communication device. I used to say they want a toaster. They want something that does one thing and it does it really well. Because all these other things we built into the systems, when they got infected or when they broke or when they, something went wrong with them, it messed up their communication. And communication trumps everything else. So now you know we know that these guys, they want their good communication device and if they want to watch a movie, they're going to watch that on their iPad. Um, and I think this is a very encouraging trend so that we're going back to make sure our AAC systems are doing the real fundamental purpose, and that's communication. And, you know, as I think about this, the person's got their communication device and they could be playing a game on a different system. It's just like all of their families. All of their families are sitting at the computer doing one thing and then their iPhones are doing something else and then they're watching the screen TV. And you know, we all are in front of multiple screens. And so I think this is a nice trend um, that I think is important for um, our individuals who are using technology that we're making sure we give them a system that does one thing and does it really well. Um, and my last trend is a, that I've been playing with, uh, mostly with the adults I support, 
is the use of intelligent assistance. You know, the series, the Cortanos. Um, you know, I'm not ready to say I'm encouraged by it, but I got to say it's a fun trend um, that I think could have some pretty significant impact on the lives of people using AAC. Um, I have this one man that I support, I'm going to call him Ken, and he's got some significant cognitive disabilities. And he thinks Siri is like the best personal caregiver he's ever had. <laughs> I'm not sure he doesn't recognize Siri is not a real person because he's commented about she best girl ever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she's not your girlfriend, but then I'm reminded from the Big Bang Theory. Remember when Raj you know, yes. was, you know, relationship with Siri. So I think, okay, so Ken doesn't realize that Siri's not a real girl. <laughs> But in the past, if Ken wanted to, you know, let's say he wanted to know the score of last night's Gator game, he used to ask one of his caregivers. Well, generally, most of those caregivers, yeah, they didn't follow Gator sports, you know, and they didn't know the score. They didn't know who won, much less the score. So they would promise him, oh, yeah, I'll look that up. I'll find that out for you. But then they never did. And so now he's got a cell phone. He's using Siri, and with his device, he just asks her. He says, hey, Siri, Gator game. And she <laughs> pops up and tells him what the score was last night. Um, and so I'm starting to explore how the use of this kind of intelligent assistance could have a positive impact on communication interaction. Now, one thing I can say is, you know, that intelligent assistant, Siri, she is a highly intelligent communication partner. It, she quickly learns a person's interests and favorite communication topics a lot faster than most human beings because she's <laughs> always listening, you know, <laughs> on her phone. She's always listening and she's never selfish. She's never thinking about herself and what she wants to say next. Um, so she's really a great communication partner. Um, and at a first glance, I thought, wow, how could I use this? How could I really use this with Ken? But I've discovered that with him talking to Siri or any other intelligent assistants, he is not being encouraged to produce grammatically or syntactically correct language. You know, if he says to Siri, hey, Siri, please tell me the score of the Gator game last night. She'll tell him the score, but she's also learning that he's interested in the sports. He's interested in the Gators. So eventually, based on the algorithm that she's got running in her brain, all he has to say is Florida Gators. Mm -hmm. And Siri knows he's talking sports, not about living predators lurking in our swamps. <laughs> the score. And so I thought, okay, it's probably not going to be a strategy I can use to help him produce better sentences. Um, but I'm discovering it is a pretty decent strategy for helping him to learn how to repair broken communication. Because he says something to Siri that Siri doesn't understand, and she's not going to guess. She's just going to tell you, I don't understand, and stare at him, you know, figuratively. Um, she doesn't start asking him a series of yes, no questions. So I'm, I'm finding this kind of interesting. Um, and I'd love to hear stories of other people who are starting to explore the use of intelligent assistance 
um, and in what ways they're finding it positively impact the communication skills and what ways it's affecting the quality of life. Because again, for me, communication always goes back to, it's got to increase my quality of life. And, and so I think you know, intelligent assistance is something to watch in the next four or five years in our field and, and what we're going to, how we're going to use that. Definitely. Yeah, those are great That's trends. so interesting. I never even thought of that as something that could interact with AAC in our field, but it's so true. Yeah. I actually, my own son has a, a little bit of difficulty producing his initial S's and he's in a, a pretty negative relationship with Alexa right now from Amazon because he tells her things and she doesn't understand. But I will say over the last couple of weeks, he's putting more of those S's on. And I think it's because he wants Alexa to understand. <laughs> and you know, you know, there's a, you know, all of these intelligence assistants have a, a learning protocol for learning a voice. And so, you know, if he's using my phone, um, I have to, sometimes he borrows my phone with Siri. And so it goes through the learning protocol. Um, if he goes to his desktop computer, that's Cortana. And mm -hmm. we went through the learning protocol. And I had to play a little bit with the various voices in a device because sometimes it learned it better than other times. Um, but generally we've worked all those kinks out and you know, it understands his speech and it ignores the speech of other people when he's talking because it's been trained to recognize his synthetic voice. And it's just been really a, a cool experience for him. Awesome. That is really cool. I love how- He always has a communication partner that's waiting there to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I like how it keeps it separate too. So they're able to do those environmental controls, um, but still use the device just for communication. Yes. So I have a client yeah. using it. Yeah, and you raise that. that. That's another use of the intelligent assistance that I'm using, environmental control, because it used to be if somebody had a device, I went to their home, I sat with the remote controls they use for their TV or their DVD player, and I had to program those all in. And invariably, they get a new DVD or new TV for Christmas. Then I got to go back in there. And, and now, yeah, you get it all set up through an intelligent assistant just put the voice commands in their device to turn their TV on and change to such and such a channel and we're good to go. Yeah, it's a really good trend, that's for sure. <laughs> so um, I attended your core training for emergent communicators last October and um, I've heard some of your really out of the box items that you've used for therapy, but we were wondering what are some of your most creative AAC solutions? Well, I think some of the most creative solutions have had to be birthed when you're dealing with young ambulatory kids because our, that's still that bit of our field where our systems don't always match because of the size and the weight and the cumberness of our systems. Um, you know, because most of our young ambulatory kids aren't really thrilled about carrying around something that's heavy. Mm -hmm. So I've gone back to channel all my inner homemaker, housewife, steel, <laughs> you know, steel seamstress, um, and haul out my old sewing machine to make simple cloth carrying cases and, you know, simple lightweight things, you know, trying to select fabric with the student that they like. 
Um, you know, I, I think so much of what we make for little kids is just ugly. I wouldn't want to carry it around either. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so it's a little bit of fashion meets AAC. You know, I have had this fantasy of let's have a, let's have a weekend of like Project Runway meets AAC. <laughs> so figure out, I've been given these 10 items, make a communication display out of them. I love that. So I, you know, I end up often in fabric shops and I end up at Michael's craft shop or in any home depot or Lowe's looking for stuff that I could possibly use. Um, and so like I keep in my collection, a whole series of fabrics, whether it's got Disney print on or it's got, you know, superhero print or it's gator print. Uh, most of what I make for people these days for their manual communication boards is probably going to be housed in some sort of cloth case that's lightweight, easy to wash. And also for those adults that have some behavior issues, when it's made out of cloth and it's not terribly heavy, if they have behavioral issues and they tend to be uh, directed towards other people, I, I would rather have them you know, hit or throw something made out of cloth than a heavy ring binder um, because those are going to hurt when they hit somebody. Um, but, and in that vein of, you know, thinking out of the box and going to other stores and looking around, I think the most clever thing that I've ever implemented was I didn't find on my own. Um, it was brought forward to me by a friend of mine whose husband is a coach for her son for their son's football team and coaches and quarterbacks wear this thing on their wrists called a wrist a coach's wristband or playbook and it could have three or four little um, plastic um, pockets in it and you know the the coach and the players put the you know the secret plays inside those wow. pockets but for our guys we put little communication displays inside of those pockets now, you know, it's, it's not the be-all, end-all, robust AAC system, but it would be good as a supplement. For example, I have a one young man, um, he's got an iPad, um, but he's not a big fan of taking his iPad when he goes to work, and he works on a yard crew. So he's out there, you know, mowing our lawns and pulling our weeds, and that's dirty, hot work. Um, and when he's doing that dirty, hot work, he wears his wristband. It's, you know, it's cloth, it's absorbent. Um, he's got what he needs on there. And if he needs more, he can go back to the truck and get where his iPad is. But it's a nice, simple, simple solution. For him. Um, and I would also say in, in the early 90s, I was privileged to go work for three months um, in about 1992, I think it was, in South Africa. Now, in that environment, which is, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of poverty where I was, a lot of AAC wasn't down there in terms of the commercial company. And I saw people making communication boards out of whatever they found laying around. Um, for visually impaired kids, there was this, these teachers who had taken cardboard boxes plain cardboard boxes. They had glued small objects around the outside of the box because they were supporting kids with deep visual impairment. 
So these kids could feel those objects glued on that box. And when they asked for one of them, they just reached in the box and took out the real object. Um, and that worked for them. I saw them using old coffee cans that were mounted on a board and the cans were on dowels. So picture in your mind, like three cans that could spin on dowels. And around the outside of each of these cans were, were symbols. And those were used for their kids with autism, who we know have, a, some, some have a love for spinning stuff. <laughs> uh, and they would walk up to where that was posted in the classroom, spin the cans and pick, pick the words they needed off of two or three cans. Um, again, using what they found. Um, and I tried to get some of these women to teach me how they were making their carrying case cases because they were making them out of old shopping bags. You know, those plastic bags we get from the grocery stores. Um, they would cut them into strips and do weaving like they would have done with basket weaving. That was part of their culture. And they made the most wonderful little harnesses kids could wear that would keep their communication boards in or little bags they would carry. And you know, I thought, th and those things were incredibly indestructible <laughs> uh, and made out of what was essentially garbage. You know, so I, I really think that um, some of these, you know, creative things we've done has been because the situation called for creativity because nothing that we could buy off the shelf really was a good fit. And sometimes it, it's because of a lack of resources. Because um, I, I think there's nothing more criminal than saying, well, we don't have it in our budget to buy this, or we can't afford this, so there's nothing we can do. If these women in South Africa could use old cardboard boxes <laughs> and old coffee cans to make a communication system, surely we in the U.S. can apply that same creativity. Can we clap to that? Yes. <laughs> I totally agree. I'm like in awe because... Um, we had Speech Time Fun, Hallie Sherman from Speech Time Fun, and she's so creative when it comes to therapy and just using what you have, like Dunkin' Donuts, you know, your, the stuff that you bought from Dunkin' Donuts that day. So I'm just like a sucker for those type of things. So yes. just hearing like the can and the tactile boxes, like, oh, I love yeah. it. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so we did reach out to our listeners and ask them what they would like to know regarding AAC. One of the questions was, I work in a private practice and need a roadmap to obtaining devices for clients. Help. Do you have any suggestions for this therapist and others working in private practice? Okay. Well, I guess when I hear her say I need a roadmap for obtaining devices, I'm going to make the assumption that she's asking for advice about getting devices that are personal devices for the kid. And how do you kind of navigate that? funding system. Um, and I would say, since she's specifically mentioned she worked in a private practice, I too work in a private practice. And my roadmap to getting a device for a client, in fact, I've got a packet sitting on my desk that's ready to go off today. And I'm, after I'm done here talking to you, I'm heading to the post office to ship <laughs> it off. And I can tell you, it's taken me somewhere between 20 to 25 hours to do everything. And I know our funding sources in the state of Florida, this gentleman is funded through Florida Medicaid waiver. And you're basically given an hour, you're given about $97.50 to do an assessment. 
And one's just got to say, well, I guess that breaks down to what, to 35 cents an hour um, with the time you put in. You know, so I appreciate when somebody's working in a private practice, the disparity between the time that it takes and the time that you get funded and the time, you know, that if, if the funding's not through a third party, then, you know, charging a family for this, it, it, it is stressful. But, you know, the process always involves in that roadmap, you know, the collecting of a pre-assessment information. Um, I, I recently was talking with a speech pathologist who is working with this client who I saw 10 years ago. And this client had no idea that this person had a device that was probably sitting in a closet somewhere had no idea that he was deeply invested in a certain strategy for coding vocabulary that if we could have gotten an updated device, he could have just picked right up most likely. So she hadn't done some pre-collection, pre-assessment information. You gotta know what's been done before, what's been tried. Then of course, you do the assessment. And people always ask, well, what, what constitutes a good assessment? And kind of my sassy response is, what constitutes a good speech language evaluation. That's what you're gonna do. Just do the best language assessment you can possibly do. And you're doing a good AAC assessment. You know, then you're interacting with the company representatives, you know, so you wanna do your device trials if you're thinking of an SGD. And then once you do those device trials, you gotta write the report and plan of care. And then you gotta do all that required paperwork. You know, and I gave some of this paperwork to this, this group of people to fill out and they all filled it out and made the signatures. Then I sent that paperwork off to the doctor because he's got to sign that same pieces of paper. And of course his office lost everything. <sighs> and so now I, you know, and, and Medicare who this is going through requires an original signature. So I got to go back to the first group, get them all to sign again. You know, this whole process, you just think, you know, is it worth it? And the answer is absolutely, it's, it's worth it. Um, so if you're, if you're looking at that roadmap, you gotta know that like any journey, you're gonna just have to stay the course, you're gonna run into some hurdles, you're gonna have to take some detours, but eventually you'll get there. Um, uh, another way to think of this idea if she's looking for a roadmap is most of our device manufacturers you know, they, they exist through third-party funding. So that means they have funding departments. And those funding departments have people, have resources, have forms, have roadmaps that you can follow if you've really never done it before. Um, now, people have asked me, um, you know, what's your secret of getting a device funded? Uh, because I, I, have, I have recommended very, very, very many devices in my 40-some years. I've never had a funding packet denied. Wow. I've had one deferred, which means they wanted some more information. But I have never had a funding packet denied. Wow. Um, and that's a crazy you, track record. <laughs> now, I probably have jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the key to not having a funding packet denied is when you know who your funding source is going to be. And let's say it's Florida Medicaid. Florida Medicaid tells you very specifically, 
what needs to be in that funding packet. Tells you very specifically what needs to be reported in that report. Tells you very specifically what they want to see documented. So you gotta make sure you give it to them. You have to give mm -hmm. it to them and you give it to them in words that they understand. And then you give them more than what they asked for. Um, in my packet, it looks like the quintessential speech language pathologist packet because it's color coded. Mm -hmm. It's got a cover sheet that says, this is what you're looking for in your, based on your documentation. This is what section it's in. And here's what page it's on. Wow. That you want to know about his receptive vocabulary, speech language report, page seven. You know, I tell them and it's color coded. That's great. You know, each section's got a divider that's and it's color coded. And I always include a DVD. Now, I don't know if any funding source has actually ever looked at these DVDs. <laughs> <I don't laughs> no wonder know. they never got turned, though. This sounds sounding You know, I don't know, but you know, everything that I've heard from other people, why things got deferred, you know, it, you started adding that to that packet. Um, and so, you know, you got to make sure you give them stuff. And I want to leave that first person who's opening that packet and looking at it. I want her impression to be, yikes, this person's got their act together. There's mm -hmm. everything here. If I defer this, this is just going to make more work for me because she's going to come back with more stuff she's going to send me. So let's just approve this now and be done with it. That's yeah. what I want her to think when she sees that packet. Definitely. And, and so far, it's worked pretty good. <laughs> I, I'm willing to bet money that nobody that's been turned down provided color coding dividers and a DVD in their packet. <laughs> no. So, if they do look at that DVD, I do hope they're seeing, and it's a, not just a DVD that shows a video, I've edited it. I'm telling, I've got scrolling <laughs> things underneath. I'm telling them what they're seeing. You know, here you see how he can access the device reliably. Here you see him building a message with language that includes, I mean, I'm, I believe my job is also, if they're looking at that DVD, to educate those people. Because that's a, that's, a, that's a bureaucrat sitting at a desk that's looking at that. And, you know, it's, it's, I, want, I, want, I want to tell them what they're seeing. I don't want them to interpret what they think they're seeing. Yeah. So that's a, maybe a little bit of controlling issue on my part, but so, I haven't been denied. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're getting a lot of individuals, you know, that need it devices. So. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So we have one more question. We're going to move to our little core themed game, but um, we know you have several AAC resources available. Can you tell us just a little bit about them? Um, yeah, well, right now at my website, um, which is my last name, vantatenhome.com, I have five resources. And there are things that I sell, but there's lots of things at my website that are also freebies. Um, and all of this, the resources that I have are based on stuff that I actually was doing with people. Like I made this thing with somebody and, and teachers loved them and families loved them and speech therapists liked them. So I thought, Oh, I should make a product out of this. Um, and so you know, like the first product that I really made was something I called the natural aided language board. You just have to kind of imagine this great big wall chart 
It has about 250, 300 words on it. And um, I turned that into a product in order to help teachers recognize what words are in the AAC system and how to get them out. If you can just read and match pictures, you can help the kids say these words. You could use the chart to model the words. So it's, it's just a handy little simple chart. Um, another product was the Core Vocabulary Classroom Kit. That also has a chart in, but that is a chart where you can remove the symbols. And teachers like that when they like to be able to remove the symbols and use them to help build sentences and do ac stuff in their academic classroom. There were, there's little cards in it you can put around your room. Like at the door, you could put the card that says, go out, you know, open it. Great. So there's a lot of things in that. Then there's uh, something called the Singing to Talking with Minspeak. Um, and that's a song book that I put together because, you know, with all of my clients, if they were having trouble remembering some of the icon sequences that were part of their Minspeak programs, I had little songs and jingles. Oh, that fun. I, you know, I have little song and jingle. And, you know, that's the way I would teach it. And it was getting some of their learning in through another channel, through this music channel. And so um, if they couldn't remember a code, I'd hum a couple bars. And I was like, oh, I know that word, you know. <laughs> and, and so that kind of turned into a, a songbook uh, because people were starting to ask for it. So that was, that was kind of a fun thing. Um, and then a, another product I have was called Unity Icon Adventures. Now that one's a little outdated, but you know I was working with a lot of classroom teachers who was, were trying to figure out now how can I, how can I also use this vocabulary in different activities in my class? And um, I started with this one girl named Lindsay. The teacher said I'm going to dedicate it 20 minutes every day to just with with Lindsay and the entire class. We're going to do an activity. So I would say, okay, I'm gonna create little lessons around one of the symbols on her board. And maybe there'll be a cooking activity or a storybook or a song. So we would have these adventures all around these words that were coded <laughs> with this symbol. And then finally, the, the, my fifth product would be the Minspeak activity scripts. And I put those together for families who said, you know, I really don't know how to, to apply this at home. Let's say, you know, we're cooking together at night or we're watching TV. So I put together these little scripts that I would say, well, mom, you say this and model this. Oh, great. And your kid could do this. So I was trying to, to kind of script some 10, 10 very common things that families do at home. Taking a walk, you know, watching TV, you know, talking about what you did at school today which every parent said to me, we're missing a word and you're, I need a new word. I said, well, what word do you need? They all said, well, when I asked all my other kids, what did they do in school today? They all said, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to say, okay, I, let's make sure she can say nothing, you know. Um, so, you know, most of those materials support kids using the MinSpeak program, specifically the Unity program. But you know, there's lots of things in there that even if you're using a different kind of speech generating device, um, it would work. And, and I'd also like to mention, I have a blog. Now I will confess, I'm not great at posting new stuff to a blog. 
but it's at WordPress and it's called Stories of a Seasoned AACSLP. Uh, and so just like I was, you know, sharing some stories with you guys, you know, it's stories about my journey, um, you know, typically with, I think, some, some moral lesson or some clinical lesson. Um, so, it, you know, if I have a new story, then I'll, I'll get inspired and post it there. So that's just gventatenove at wordpress.com. And just to, as a, to pique the interest of your audience, one of the stories is, yes, I can say vagina. <laughs> That's the title. The story of a young man exploring the vocabulary. <laughs> I need to check that out. And, you know, how that, you know, the reaction of his communication partners at his, at his group home. Oh, <laughs> so. oh, my gosh. All right. So now... Onto a little core game. We're doing a little getting to know you. Okay. Um, all right. So we are going to ask you about some of your favorite things, and we want you to use core to describe it. We'll Ooh. see if we can guess it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can you tell us about your favorite food? Favorite food. Round. Red, hot triangles. Pizza? Yep. All right. <laughs> also my favorite. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us about your favorite show? My favorite show? That's easy. Um, I got to think one show. Um, Open food inside weird. Weird's not really coarse. I would say funny. Make something. Is it like the? Is it on the Food Channel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm just not. I know. I like. I knew it was like some sort of cooking competition show. I'm just not very good with those thinking about what the opening is. Is this where they like have to like, they get surprised about the ingredients that they have? Yeah. Okay, can you tell us the name? Cause the I don't title? know if I would know what it is. I will give you a core synonym, cut. Oh yes. Um, oh, is it chopped? Yes. yes! <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, favorite drink. Favorite drink. Ah, oh, well, let's see. I would say my favorite current drink would be, oh, but it's going to have some uh, smooth, white, cold, um, it's a little corey. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not a core word, uh, banana in. Oh, is that a smoothie? Yes, I, I, my current favorite is banana smoothies. Oh, yum. <laughs> it's like combination drink dessert. <laughs> All right. Uh, can you tell us about your favorite holiday? Oh, my favorite holiday. Uh, my favorite holiday would be um, hurt. Not live, now live again. What was that? Is that 
not day of the dead wait what is that one no um oh is it easter easter yeah. okay all right <laughs> my favorite holiday is easter yeah that's a great holiday. i wasn't going to go the bunny route uh, all right, one All right. More. last one. Favorite season. Favorite season. Well, it would be cold, 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 long time. <laughs> Winter. Not Winter. in Florida, right? Yeah, in Florida, it's so hard to teach children about seasons in general. And I, I feel like I always, with the fall, you know, I, I'm from up north originally. And, uh, I always try to get some fall leaves and tell them that. And I always have to have that disclaimer, like, well, not here, but in other places, it's <laughs> like this. <laughs> oh, oh, that was gosh. great. This has been so fun. This has been amazing. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, you're so welcome. I had a good time and I hope that your audience will have a, a few little nuggets that they can use and and I appreciate, again, being the shoulders that other people can stand on. So I'm paying it forward. Love to be able to talk with you some other time. Oh, my gosh, love that. yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Gail. You're welcome. All right. Until next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We cannot get over how inspiring Gail is, and we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Remember, we're still a small podcast as we only have 16 episodes, so your reviews mean the world to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to let Gail know, please consider leaving a review. And as always, thank you so much for listening.